morning. Our reading today will come from the book of Luke. It does get a little long, so if you feel the need to sit down, please feel free to do so. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we're going to drop down to verse 11. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In verse 11, And he said, There is a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. As, uh, as you heard this morning, we're going to be in Luke 15, possibly, I think, the most famous of all of Jesus' parables, the parable that we have titled The Prodigal Son, which can be a little bit of a deceiving title if you think about it, because there's not just one lost son in this parable. There are how many? Two. There are two lost sons. And this title, the prodigal son, can give us the idea that if, 
if we were to put emphasis on one of the two lost sons, it should be the younger one. And as we're going to see in a minute, that couldn't be further from the truth. But to understand this, to see this, it's helpful to go back and look at the first two verses that were just read in verses one and two. We get the context and see what it is that Jesus is trying to accomplish. Jesus, Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So who is it that Jesus is preaching to? He's preaching to the Pharisees, the Pharisees who did not like the grace that Jesus was giving these tax collectors and these sinners. So we have to first ask ourselves, what is a tax collector? (laughs) Because tax collectors in that day, they don't look anything like tax collectors in our day. Tax collectors in the Roman era resembled really the mafia more than, than the IRS. In the Roman times, you had an empire that stretched from India all the way over to England. And so as you can imagine, getting taxes from, from people strewn out that far wasn't an easy task. So the Romans would, they would actually hire out the office of tax collector to somebody in that area. They would give it to the highest bidder. So they find their highest bidder and then that person would have to pay up front and then he got the right to be the tax collector in a certain area. And once all that was done, he could pretty much tax whoever he wanted, however much he wanted, whenever he wanted to. And there was really not much of anything anybody could do about it. So these tax collectors, they, they were hated all over the empire. But in Israel, they were especially hated We can see now from from ancient documents that a tax collector wasn't allowed to even go in the temple. And the Jews actually made, uh, they made a provision in the law. They said the one time that it was permissible to lie was if you're talking to a tax collector. I mean, they hated tax collectors. And I was was reading one pastor, Kevin DeYoung, if you know him, and he was trying to really, really get across what it would have felt like to see Jesus hang out with these people. And he said, you know, imagine if you went into a fraternity house and you saw the elders in this church just hanging out. And I was thinking, well, that, that really wouldn't be that helpful because in our church, you, you may very well see some of our elders in fraternity houses at Old Miss. But it, it got me thinking, you know, what if you walked into Pastor Kurt's house and you saw him reclining, eating with, and laughing with known gang members or known drug dealers or maybe known abortionists. And it wasn't, you're not looking at a Bible study here. I mean, I think if Jesus was was having a Bible study for these people, there would have been a measure of grace. But Jesus was eating with them, enjoying them with them, enjoying them, laughing with them. How might that have felt? When we look at this passage, we're seeing a passage that's communicating the gravity of God's grace. A grace so profound and seemingly unfair in many ways that it can actually make people mad. I had the opportunity to tell a little bit of my testimony to most of you earlier. When I became a Christian late in my time at Florida State, there was one other guy in in our fraternity who was known as the Christian guy. And uh, he... He didn't do a lot of the things that, that the rest of us did, and he would let us know at every opportunity that he wasn't doing those things. 
And I had been a Christian probably three or four months, and he came up to me and he said, Jim, I just have to let you know I have hated you these past few months. And I was kind of shocked. I was thinking, man, if there's one guy that would be on my side, it should be him. And he said, you have somehow gotten overnight something that I have worked so hard all my life to try and find. When we see somebody else getting something that we've worked hard for, it will make us mad. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to address. That's exactly the kind of emotion he's trying to provoke in the Pharisees as they watch Jesus enjoying and giving grace to people that didn't work nearly as hard as they did. So I wanna look at the gravity of God's grace in this passage by simply walking through four characters. Four characters in, that, in this story. That's what we're gonna do. And we'll start with the younger brother. Let's look again at verses 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, there are so many cultural differences between them and us that it's helpful to understand what exactly the younger son is asking for here. Because in, in that day, uh, if, you had, if a man had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the property in his inheritance, and the younger son would be privy to one-third. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a simple matter of like going to the bank or the stock market and pulling out one-third of what your father had. Most of what he had would have been in property and animals, livestock. So for the, the son to take something with him, the dad would have had to go and sell one-third of what he had. And beyond that, it isn't like the son is just saying, I want your stuff. He's saying, I want your stuff more than I want you. And I, it would be better for me if you were dead. So that kind of request, it would be, it would be shocking in any culture. It would be disrespectful in any culture, but it was scandalous in Jesus's. So the request was shocking, but then just as shocking, in my opinion, the dad agrees. He agrees to do this for the son, and the text says that, uh, that he took, the younger son took that money, and he went to a far-off country. And the idea here of, of adding this far-off country is you can get you can get more trouble in a pagan country than you can in an Israelite country. So it's adding to the scandal of the whole thing. I mean, it's one thing to say that you went and you blew all your inheritance on a gambling cruise ship that goes out of Canaveral. That, that would be bad. But then if you go and say you, you blew all your inheritance in Freeport or Amsterdam, all right, that opens up all kinds of options. That's a whole nother level of scandal, of blowing, squandering what you have. So the money is squandered. He has no job because this far off country has hit hard times and he's resorting to getting by by feeding pigs. So this would have just added to the insult as well because pigs were unclean animals and he got to the point where he began to desire to eat what the pigs were eating. And this is when Jesus said, this younger son came to himself. He came to himself realizing that back home with his father, if he was a servant there, he would at least eat well. And so he came up with this plan to return home and to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
This is the first lost son. The first lost son who follows all of his desires and they leave him empty. He pursues everything that he thinks is going to make him happy. And at the end of the day, he has nothing. And before we move on, I, I want to talk to any parents here who might have a prodigal son, a fleeing son. And I appreciate Chuck mentioning that even as he read, as he read to us earlier. You know, I'm, I've got four little kids. My oldest is 10. So I don't yet know the pain of watching a child pursue a, a track that you know isn't going to fulfill him, that you know likely will be even destructive for him or for her. And even though I'm, I'm still fairly young, I guess, I like to think, I have parents regularly who will come to me, probably mostly because we live in a college town, and they'll ask questions, they'll ask me how to deal with their wandering child. So I've then, in turn, I've gone to pastors who I respect and licensed counselors who I respect, and I've asked them, how would you respond to a parent of a fleeing child like this? And the answer has always been the same. The answer is love them. Love them. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that it says something about the character of the father in the story that the son knows he can always go home. He can go home and there's not going to be, and I told you so, he's going to go home and they're going to be open arms. So that's to the parents. But what if you're here this morning and you are that fleeing child? What if you're here this morning and you're wondering, what would it look like for me to return to my heavenly father? Well, we get to see in the second character, the father, Look again at verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So how do you think that Jesus's original audience, these Pharisees would have heard the response of the father to his son? It would have been shameful. It would have been a disgrace. This son wished you dead. He took your property. He squandered it. I mean, maybe you can welcome him back after a long period of penance where he can come and earn back the debt that he owes to you, but to just welcome him back, to kill your best animal, to put your clothes on this boy who has been with pigs and probably hasn't bathed since he's been with those pigs. And beyond all that, you ran to him. A man of this stature in that community would never have run in this, this scenario. So the father's reaction to the Pharisees would have been scandalous. But this is how the father responds. Because in this story, the younger son represents all of us who have realized that we make terrible gods for ourselves. And the gracious father And this story represents our heavenly father who awaits all of us who turn and repent and come to him. 
at My Grace, Grace Bible of Oxford, we have a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And I'm curious, just help me with contextualization. How many of you have heard of Celebrate Recovery? Okay, it's, it, about half of you. It's a recovery ministry, and, and I try to go about once a month. And when I go to this ministry, it, it does something to my soul to see the transparency of this group, to see the honesty of this group, to see the vulnerability of this group, but most of all, to see the grace of this group. When I look at Celebrate Recovery, you know, I know that there is a culture out there and they hear something from the church that sounds like you go deal with your junk and then you come back to the church. And when I see this parable, I see Jesus saying something totally different. Jesus is saying the only way we can deal with our junk is to run to the Father. And when I look around at what I want my church to look like, I don't know of a better place than Celebrate Recovery or other recovery groups because there is a place that people who have lots of junk and let me say, we all have lots of junk. <laughs> they, they may see God's grace in a unique way, but it's not because they're in any way uh, more sinful or more depraved. We're all in recovery because we are all sinners. And if I can point to one place and say, that's what church should look like because church, we represent the Father on earth. It's a recovery group. And when we run to the Father full of shame and guilt. Do you know how he's going to respond? With joy and celebration. Joy and celebration. When we look at Luke 15, there are actually three parables here. This is, this is the third of three parables in the same context. The first is, is the lost sheep. The second is the lost coin. And now we have the lost son. But in that same context, look at verse 7 when the sheep is found. Luke says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then with the coin, Jesus says in verse 10, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God and over one sinner who repents. And that joy that the Father feels that's, that's being shared all throughout the heavenly realms, then overflows into celebration. And I have a lot of friends who are introverts, and I, and, I, and I realize that when we talk about a celebration or a party, that doesn't sound exciting to me, statistically half of you. But if that's you, if you're more introverted in nature, I promise you, this will be a party that you will like. So just imagine for now a party of, uh, of your closest, intimate, most intimate friends, where the focus is really never going to be put on you at all, okay? It's a good party. You will enjoy it. And I want you to listen to how the prophet Isaiah says this party is going to go down. Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all types of people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, full of food, uh, rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
And if you're here today and you're thinking something like, but Jim, you don't understand. You don't understand how far away I am. You don't know the things that I've done, the things that I'm doing. If that's you, I want you to hear me say that every parent over a certain age, they know the pain of watching their children make decisions that we know are not going to turn out for their well-being. And somehow, very counterintuitively, that pain draws out more love than we know how to, that we knew we even had as we watch them make these bad decisions. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. The farther we are, the more He longs, the more He longs for you to come home. All of us, we have a Father who longs to celebrate our return. Because when we return, the text says the Father will be glad. But the text also says that when the Father is glad, there will be those who grumble. And that leads us to the third character, the older brother. How does the brother respond to the celebration that the Father is throwing for the Son? Look at verses 28 through 30. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother hates the grace that his younger brother is receiving and it's making him angry at his father and at his brother. And this text has been taught often in 20th century American evangelicalism to be seen as this. The younger brother represents the lost person and the older brother represents the Christian. I don't know if any of you grew up in churches that taught it that way, but that couldn't be further from the truth. We see from the reaction of the older brother that he's just as lost. He has the same reaction that Jesus's audience is having to Jesus enjoying and eating with all these tax collectors and sinners. So we see here two kinds of lostness. But before we go there, we need to ask the question, what does it mean to be lost? In biblical terms, to be lost means to be out of fellowship with God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to hear me say I'm sure, certainly not trying to use this term lost in any kind of um, demeaning way. It's just that Jesus uses this word, so my hands are, are a bit tied here. But if this is you, first I want to say I'm glad that you're you feel comfortable coming to a church like this. It says a lot about this church if you've chosen to come here. But I want to ask, could it be that one of the reasons that you reject God is because of what you've seen happen inside the church? Because of what you've seen, p- things you've seen people inside the church do. And if, if that's you, if that is part of your story, I want you to hear Jesus saying it could be that they're lost as well. There are different kinds of lostness. You have this younger brother lostness where someone is openly rejecting and openly running from God. 
But then you have this older brother type lostness that Tim Keller defines as a person who believes that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. And since it's Winter Olympic season or has just finished, we, we were, we're big Winter Olympic fans. <laughs> I wanted to try and ascribe a winter sport to each of these kinds of lostness. All right. So I don't know how many of you were around during the 1992 Winter Olympics, but they had an exhibition event called speed skiing. And in speed skiing, you went to the top of a mountain and there was a track that went straight down and you wore the super aerodynamic gear and the goal was to see how fast you could go. It wasn't how like short a period of time to get to the bottom. It was literally how many miles per hour can you go? And it's so insanely dangerous that they've since banished it from all Olympic events. But if, if I were to ascribe a type of lostness to the Winter Olympics, it would be this. It would be the kind of person who just points their skis down and they follow the desires wherever they may take them, hoping for a thrill, not realizing the whole time they're in grave danger. That's younger brother kind of lostness. And then older brother kind of lostness, I think more would be like the cross-country skiers. I don't know if there's a type of athlete in the Winter Olympics who works harder than a cross-country skier. Uh, They they train year-round. They watch what they eat. They they painfully strive for each step that they get during their race. Yet in 1992, when everybody turned the TV on, you know what they wanted to see? Speed skiing. That sport where their only skill is to tuck into a ball for 30 seconds and not die. And I have to imagine that there were more than a few cross-country skiers mumbling about the glory the speed skiers were receiving. So the younger brother is marked by destructive living and the older brother is marked by joyless compliance, but they're both lost. The younger brother's trying to escape God's control while the older brother's trying to control God through his good moral works, but they're both lost. But Jesus seems to be saying here that one type of lostness is actually worse than the other because at least the younger brother knows that he's lost. The older brother's lost and doesn't know it. So the question we need to ask ourselves as we're looking at this text is how might we know if we're that older brother? And so I've come up with four diagnoses to help us discern if maybe we're that kind of older brother. And the first is this. Do you have a dry prayer life? You know, we, try, we, we tend to speak differently with a colleague at work than, they, than we would with an intimate friend. Is it possible that we look at God less as an intimate friend and more as a colleague? someone we're doing business with. If that's the case, it could be that we're an older brother. Secondly, do you see people making bad decisions and have this emotion of superiority well up in you? Does it make you feel better about yourself? Do you kind of deep down want those bad decisions that other person is making? Do you want it to be known rather than having your heart break for them? If that's the case, you may tend towards the older brother side of lostness. Thirdly, and I have to be careful with this one, do you look down on bad theology? I know you don't know me. 
but I, I feel competent in saying that anyone who does know me would say that I care deeply about good theology. I've devoted my life to understanding the Bible and seeing that it's taught correctly. But at Grace Bible Church, everyone who teaches the Bible, whether it's on Sunday or Wednesday or a course seminar or some other small group, they're all going to hear from us that we value right information being taught. But our ultimate value is that it would be taught in a way that would cause its listener to grow in love. Because we can teach the right information the wrong way. If right information is more important to us than love, then we could tend towards the older brother lostness. Certainly this was the Pharisees. They knew their theology. They knew the right things, but they weren't teaching it in a way that resulted in love. And then lastly, when things go wrong in your life, do you look at it as punishment? Because if your status with God is directly correlated to what you do, your good moral works, when things go bad, you're gonna look at God and say, why? I don't think I've merited this. It feels like a punishment rather than a sanctification. About a hundred years ago, there was a guy, well, there was a British daily newspaper and they published a question to England that they wanted wanted its, its readers to respond to. And the question was simply this, what is wrong with the world? And a British author named G.K. Chesterton responded, and famously now, after they published it, and he said this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. An older brother could have never responded that way. Because an older brother thinks that he's everything that's right with this world. If only people would act like me, if only people would vote like me, then this world would fundamentally be a good place. So this year, probably about a year ago now, I got turned on to the New York Review of Books. Uh, And I am really curious, is anybody else out here subscribed to the New York Review of Books? Okay, my new best friend. All right, so the New York Review of Books, it is this usually monthly newspaper-like publication, and it it gives a very long summary of all the books that, that, well, all the well-known books that have been published that month, mostly books that we would never have time to read, Uh, and, and honestly, often the summary is every bit as good as reading the book itself, but last month's publication reviewed Hillary Clinton's new book, What Happened?, and so the title, it's not what happened with a question mark, it's what happened, period. And I'm not trying to get really political here, but she put herself out there and she said that she has always identified with the older brother in this parable. She said, I've worked so hard only to see other people get what I wanted. And then she has this quote I'm gonna read that the reviewer called the most insightful and telling, or excuse me, revealing part of her book. Hillary said this, how grating it must have been to see his wayward sibling come back as if nothing had happened. It must have felt as if all his years of hard work and dutiful care meant nothing at all. And I don't want to minimize the value of hard work and dutiful care. (laughs) Those are important things. But if that is what we're relying on to find joy and satisfaction and happiness in this life and acceptance in the next life, then we will end up 
miserable, bitter, and utterly unable to enjoy anybody's successes but our own. That's the life of an older brother. And one of the interesting things to me about this parable is that it's incomplete. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but, it, but it's incomplete in two ways. In the first, it's not finished. We don't know how the older brother responds to the father. We don't know because Jesus is laying this out for the Pharisees hearing it. The Pharisees haven't responded, so Jesus is giving us a parable that begs the question. But it's incomplete in a second way. It's incomplete because there's a missing character. So Tim Keller and many others have put this forward, that you have the younger brother, you have the father, you have the older brother, and then you have the missing brother. And the missing brother is our last character. If you look at the other two parables, you see someone who went out to seek the thing that was lost. You see a shepherd who sought the sheep. You see a woman who sought the coin. But there's no one, no older brother in this passage seeking out the younger brother at cost to himself for the joy of the father. That character is blatantly missing from the story. We're missing an older brother who would seek out the younger brother in the name of the father, even if it meant his own comfort, even if it meant his own dignity, even if it meant his money, even if it meant his life. Angela and I have some friends whose oldest son saved his younger brother from drowning and it cost his life. Where is that kind of brother in this story? Jesus is that missing brother. And as Jesus is telling the story, he's in the middle of doing just that. He left the comfort of heaven to enter into the pain of earth. He left the honor of heaven to come down to the shame of the cross. And he took on human form only to give it up that we might be saved. Jesus is the missing brother. The missing brother who has come to seek out all of us for the joy of the Father at great cost to himself. The grace that God offers us in Jesus Christ, it isn't just profound, it isn't just lavish, it's scandalous. It's as scandalous as a Jewish father throwing a party, killing the fattened calf, putting his clothes running after a son who had publicly and grievously rebelled against him. That's the category that we should have for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this grace should shape every facet of the ministry of our churches. It could, we could probably here come up with a thousand ways that it, this kind of grace should shape the ministry of our churches, but I'm gonna finish by suggesting four, three. First, we need to ask ourselves daily the question, are we experiencing this kind of scandalous grace? Because if we're experiencing this kind of scandalous grace, all the things that, that the world and our flesh 
the pull that it has on us, it will diminish greatly if we're experiencing this measure of grace. Are we experiencing scandalous grace? Second, are we being accused of befriending sinners and tax collectors? You know, do the people we hang out with, not as projects, but enjoy and love, do people's heads turn because of heads turn because of the stigmas that they might have on their lives? And I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting anything terribly compromising. I mean, if, if you've struggled with alcohol, I'm not suggesting a bar ministry. If you're a guy, I'm not suggesting a sorority ministry at UCF. But are we befriending people who are so different than us that heads begin to turn and maybe people inside the church would make some similar accusation that the Pharisees are making to Jesus? And then thirdly, Are we offering this scandalous grace to those around us? If we're experiencing this grace, we're going to be offering it. You talk about what you think about and you think about what you love. Are we experiencing it? Are we befriending very different types of people? And are we offering it? That will profoundly shape every facet of ministry in every church in the world. So I'm going to finish by praying exactly for that. (laughs) That these things would be true at Orlando Grace through its members and friends here today and not today. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for your church. And I am thankful for this church. I'm thankful for all the, the ministries that I have seen, been a part of, and been blessed by. Just last week, visiting Jody Valaket, who this church has sent to plant a church on the other side of the world. Somebody who gets lavish, scandalous grace. I thank you for many friends in this room who are experiencing this grace and going out and offering this grace. And I pray for all of us, wherever we are right now, that we would in no way feel guilted into doing something that we're not doing or should do more, but that we would feel motivated, that we would be excited to go out and as we experience this grace, offer it to other people. And I pray that there would be tangible fruit in this church as we go out, as we by the power of your spirit spirit, experience your grace and offer it to those we care about and love. I pray this in the only name we can come to you and ask anything. Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.